Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. We've got a wonderful new guest host here today for Spirit in Action. Her name is Brenda Astorino, and she does a program for community radio station KLOI on Lopez Island, which is one of the San Juan Islands just off the coast of Washington State. They've been carrying both my Spirit in Action Song of the Soul programs for almost 15 years, and they've also had a number of other wonderful local and national shows, including Pathways with Brenda Astorino. You'll have a glimpse today of Brenda's show through an interview she did with activist Bill Moyer, director of the Backbone Campaign, and also active with Solutionary Rail. You'll find out about that and more as I hand the mic over to Brenda Astorino for today's Spirit in Action program. Hello, Mark, and I'm grateful for this opportunity to introduce your audience to Bill Moyer of the Backbone Campaign. That's backbonecampaign.org. He speaks to people all over the world and works with them to create artful and positive change. I was really impressed when I first learned about you and saw how you could unify groups. What would you like us to know first about the name of your organization, the Backbone Campaign? Well, first of all, I guess people should know that it's not an association for chiropractors. (laughs) It's an organization that uh, was started by a group of artists on Vashon Island in 2003. It took me a while to realize that uh, the the backbone metaphor uh, had particular resonance for me. Uh, I was a little slow on the uptake to realize that maybe there was a connection between having broken my own back uh, and the experience of having a broken back made it very visceral to to understand what it means to not have one's backbone. So for me, the backbone is a a symbol of how all things, the issues that we care about are connected. It is at the center, the core of our being. It is our structure. It it is a, a metaphor for personal courage, for standing in your values. We started from this idea of, well, wouldn't it be funny if we brought the Democrats a 70-foot or a 100-foot backbone? And we ended up building a a 70-foot spandex and kite rod and other <laughs> a backbone. And every one of the vertebrae had um, an issue slogan. And so it connected all of the all of the issues we cared about. Over the years, it moved from the idea of giving someone else a backbone to the backbone being the a metaphor for social movement. I mentioned that I that I broke my back. Well, I broke my back because I was climbing in a tree, enjoying the beauty, the birds, you know, at sunset. Um, I stepped down in a branch, a very green branch broke under my foot, and I lost my grip, and I fell backwards. And I was about... 50 to 60 feet up. So um, I had the time to just think, oh, this could be it. And I landed on the ground. 
and I realized I was alive and, uh, but I had the experience of, of, of wanting to do something, wanting to get up, but the inability to connect my desire with, with my own capacity to manifest that desire. So that, that mismatch between my own desire and what I was able to do, uh, to me, is a, a, a metaphor between the, the difference between having a vision and aspirations and having the power to manifest those, that vision and those aspirations. And to me, the difference between having and not having that power is what social movement is about. And so that, for me, is why Backbone remains a, a, a useful brand or metaphor for our work, even though we're far less focused on, on politicians and way more focused on uh, supporting communities and organizations uh, with progressive aspirations for the future to, um, to express themselves in an artful way that is, uh, appeals to people's values and, uh, and builds a, a sense of a shared common vision and common cause. I know you just had an ORCA artful presentation. Would you expand about that? Yeah, I'd love to. So I'm a fourth generation Washingtonian, and I know compared to our indigenous brothers and sisters, I'm, we're very, very much a newbie. But I grew up around this area and heard stories of the salmon, uh, the abundance of salmon. And, you know, I grew up, you know, playing on the beaches of Puget Sound and turning over rocks and seeing the abundance of life in Puget Sound. And I also grew up during uh, the, uh, the fishing wars. Uh, my dad worked for the Swinomish tribe in La Conner, uh, near La Conner in the 70s. So I was in grade school at that time and uh, experiencing uh, some of that as a young person, very young person experiences these things, you know, through the filters of our family and our community, everything we get to experience from the, um, the cascades or the Olympics inland, beautiful inland sea um, to, uh, to the lush tall trees and the huckleberries and the, the beauty that we're surrounded by the, the shape of our environment, the, uh, you know, the, the richness of it, it does, I believe, instill a sense of the sacred, um, uh, of things that are, that are totally beyond price in each of us who are open to this place that we live. I think it's pretty much impossible to be here and not open up to this place. So, um, as social movement, progressive movement, battle and then another issue and then you just keep stacking the issues like the like the backbone i described it comes to be clear it has become clear to me this is not just about individual issues this is about a battle of paradigms a battle of of of, of fundamental assumptions of what matters and what is motivating the systems that are that are in conflict the the system that puts a price on everything is an extractive system that gains, you know, short-term 
profits or accumulation of power and wealth at the expense of the place and the people that it extracts from. The paradigm that I want to help bolster and and is a paradigm where the fundamental assumption isn't about accumulation or extraction or or concentration of power and wealth but it's i would say that the the paradigm that we're opposing is so woven into our culture it's kind of like rooted almost i think very actually very literally rooted in the um in the calvinist traditions of like predestination and and showing that we've uh, that we've uh, that we're part of the chosen. It's very individual. It ha- it, it actually requires. Like, I would say inequality in that system is basically a sacrament. So that is that's very daunting, and it's you know, and it's woven within our entire society and how we approach things. And then, but the paradigm that I believe is is a life-giving paradigm is a paradigm where, that acknowledges that we're all in this together and that that's the fundamental assumption is that we're all in this together yes and the nature that we're that surrounds us is supporting us we're all part of that community and we have an obligation that is a uh, sacred obligation is cannot be bought or sold that uh, an obligation to past and future generations that's a very long preamble to uh, to talking about an a-, a particular action. One of the things that we did in a, a local fight in 2009 on the island where I live, Vashon, uh, we did a a large human mural. We created a, a grid on the beach. A, a local carpenter figured out how to take the shape of an orca and then stake it out at low tide tied and um and and then we got people with umbrellas and dressed in black and white and such to get in the shape of an orca and in that day we had to have somebody with a local with a plane fly by and um and take a photo with a photographer in there well now since then inspired by telequa the mother orca who a few years ago um had a, a calf that died um you know, right after it was born or, and she, um, everybody knows this story, right? That she propelled it for 17 days and a thousand miles. She kept it at the surface. Uh, and then she was supported by her entire uh, pod. And a lot of people talked about, oh, she's kind of obsessed. It was clear to me that that was an underestimation of her intelligence and her capacity to communicate. And so I, I feel like Telequa was raising the alarm for these other species who had had such a dramatic impact in the last 100, 150 years in this place where um, she and her um, people have lived, as they say, since time immemorial. Connecting us to this place and Telequa, we started to uh, to look at the issue of what's the, what do the southern resident orcas need to survive, and what became clear to me was that the the, the number one thing they need is Chinook salmon, right? Right, because right, they don't eat, I guess, uh, sea lions and such, but they, they prefer Chinook salmon, and <clears throat> a lot of those salmon, they'll actually travel great distances to the mouth of the Columbia River, harvest the salmon, the Chinook that, that uh, come out of the Snake and Columbia River basins. After Telequa, we started 
redoing these, these orca murals, these human murals. And what I love about them is they're a way for us who are uh, captured by the sacred obligation that we have and our connection to this beautiful place that we live. And it's a way of expressing it, not as individuals, but as, as a community of people. Mm-hmm. So we have to be a community of people coming together to manifest one of these things. You can't do it alone. Right. But I love that aspect of it. And we just did, I think, our 15th at uh, Victor Steinbrook Park in Seattle and got news coverage. And the reason this is uh, so important is uh, is that in order to make sure that those orca have something to eat, that there are Chinook salmon, uh, we need to undo uh, a wrong that we have done to uh, uh, to the Snake River and to the salmon and to the orca. So the salmon that go into Idaho, which to me is already amazing, even if they had to go through no dams, it would be mind-boggling to me to imagine that that trip. And um, and they have to be strong to make that trip. And so they're, they're a, a important big Chinook salmon. But regardless, they know they have to go already over f- four dams on the Columbia. And that's coming down the river. And that's then going, returning to spawn. But then you, we added the, the additional four on the Snake River. And each, each time those salmon have to cross, it takes a toll whether they're the the fry or they're they're the adults and and so we basically have a situation where we're going to lose through the extinction of multiple runs of schnooks sockeye and steelhead this the the salmon who who make that incredible journey to idaho the one the thing we know that if we don't do we guarantee their extinction and the one thing we can can do to to give them the best possible chance of survival is to breach the four lower Snake River dams and to do it ASAP. So, uh, and just for your listeners, that the snow the the lower Snake River dams produce four or five percent of BPA's power. The dams are already aged. They're almost hitting their, their limits. They do not hold water. They're a, a run of river dams, meaning that they're not holding a big reservoir so that then they can let uh, generate some power when we need it and not generate uh, when we don't need it. They're not big irrigation sources because they don't, uh, again, they're run of river, but they slow the river so dramatically that they impact the poor fish they they don't have a the young ones aren't getting flushed out to sea they're having to swim to sea and they're having to figure out where the which direction the sea is so they're not really important for irrigation and uh, the wheat out there a lot of it is not even is not irrigated the one thing that they're doing is that they are providing locks as an alternative to rail for moving grain and uh, there was a dream of having an inland port in Lewiston, but there have been no containers that have been taken inland since like 2015. So the last seven years, at least that that's an obsolete idea. It's not, it's not happening. It's not an inland port. Uh, 
And the, the wheat use of those dams for barging for wheat is uh, we ended up subsidizing each barge to the tune of um, $25,000 to $35,000 per barge. So one of the projects we're working on right now is to uh, to talk about the mode shift. The mode is like what mode of transportation, the shift of wheat and other crops off of barges and onto trains and what capa- we're trying to uh, document what capacity is there, what is needed, et cetera. But for the most part, it seems like there's plenty of rail capacity if we just figure out how to use it. And, um, and we don't really need the barges. There's no real good excuse for not um, taking these barriers away from the salmon. And we know nature is abundant when it's allowed to be so. So uh, breaching these dams uh, is, has great promise. And we're in a moment where finally... The tribes have all united, affiliated tribes, Northwest Indians. Uh, they passed a resolution a year ago, April. And Mike Simpson, a Republican congressman from Idaho, um, a year ago in March, released a, um, a framework that says, no more just lawsuits. Let's figure this out. Let's make communities wow. whole, et cetera. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. After a lot of pressure, uh, Jay Inslee and Patty Murray and have uh, agreed to uh, create a framework. Now, of course, we thought that Telequah was going to do this. We thought that it was going to be enough because Jay Inslee put together his, you know, ORCA task force. Well, they didn't. My faith in elected officials to do the right thing has been eroded, and <laughs> sadly, over the course of my life, including as an activist. So, I think it's very much up to us as people who love this place to make sure that Senator Cantwell gets on board and that, uh, that uh, President Biden gets on board and that Murray and Inslee are, uh, and everyone knows that we have their back and that this is the right thing to do and this is the time to do it. Anyway, that's why we're doing these, these human orca murals. That's why we're doing a lot of work lately um, visibility work to try to keep it in the news, make it go mainstream, support, stand up for what the tribes are already asking for, and um, and do something that allows the paradigm, it is a paradigm of abundance, nature's ability to be abundant, um, to, 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 to be allowed to do so um, by getting out of the way um, and shifting how we relate to this place. That's really exciting, though, that you have more people thinking about it. I do want you to, to talk to the trainings you do with people. But first, could you talk about how you unify people? I think that the, the fundamental piece is to honor the people that are participating, to uh, speak to and uh, appeal to their inherent genius, their leadership, their values. And to be as authentic as possible, even in stressful moments, um, and uh, and and also to to prepare adequately so that uh, people feel like they're they're being um, 
their safety and their well-being is being considered. So, uh, you know, whenever we do an action, it's something that we've um, we've practiced or prepared for, and you know, provided opportunities for people to to prepare for and feel comfortable. And it, I think you're probably referring to the shell no protests or something, maybe yes. that. Yes. Isn't it? Okay, great. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, and those were very challenging and those were collaborations across many organizations and they involved being on the water, which is inherently uh, dangerous, but it's also inherently unifying because we're all in this together we are literally all in this together and we're responsible for each other's safety so i i think that's mostly about making sure that we're honoring each other as best we can and and you know no one's perfect at that and it's it's hard in stressful situations and it's and everything takes a lot of collaboration and the building of teams uh to facilitate those experiences so um i've just been very lucky to be able to be embraced by my community to have this organization that has given me the opportunity to um to learn so much and participate in so many actions you know really hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of of protests and various of various sorts and and so anyway that's i i just feel like i'm i'm i could have been a really good drummer you know, you can if do I, that too. <laughs> I know, I know what I really like. I love drumming, and I and I really, but wow, but my, you know, they talk about ten thousand hours of, you know, when you get uh, ten thousand hours of is necessary of practice to to get to this, you know, mastery of a particular thing. I studied uh, percussion in India, and that's where that comes up. I guess I just kind of by default got my 10,000 hours being an activist uh, rather than being a drummer. I'm going to break in here to Brenda Astorino's interview with Bill Moyer, executive director of the Backbone Campaign. Wonderful stuff. I'm learning right along with all of you as Brenda serves as guest host today for Spirit in Action. Our website is northernspiritradio.org, and on it we've got links to both Brenda and to the work of both Brenda and Bill Moyer, and links to all of our guests of the past 17 and a half years for my Spirit in Action and Song of the Soul programs. There's lots more at northernspiritradio.org, including the opportunity to comment on this and other programs. I love your feedback, folks. Love to know that you're out there listening and engaging. And while you're visiting our website, please consider donating to help Northern Spirit Radio survive and thrive. We depend on you, not government, not corporations, because we want to ensure that we're serving our listeners, not the big money. Also, support your local community radio stations like KLOY and the other 35 to 45 stations that carry Northern Spirit Radio shows. They serve the community with your support. I'm grateful for Brenda's help today, so I'll turn it back over to Brenda Astorino and Pathways. You mentioned earlier when you were speaking to the salmon's journeys across the dams, the rail. What and why is the rail? And why now? Yeah. Well, you know, one thing about being an activist for 
well, I've been an activist really in one way or another since I was, uh, you know, pretty young. Um, I think I went to my first protest when I was in eighth grade. And then I grew up around, you know, uh, indigenous people who were engaged in some struggles. So, but really like being an activist full time for 19 years, it can have a downside because there's so much to say no to. And if you're caught up saying no all the time, yeah. And that's the that's your orientation, and and whether it's the corporations or it's the elected officials that sort of train you to be uh, cynical, and um, it can take a, it takes a real toll. We need to balance opposition with proposition. We need to uh, when we critique, we also have to um, propose. When we were fighting a, a bunch of engaged with lots of other in the region on these fossil fuel fights against, you know, the coal ports and the, and the oil terminals and the methanol plant, et cetera. And then shall know, I got to meet some railroad activists, uh, railroad labor activists who were on the other side of like advocating for a coal terminal because of their fighting for some jobs. So I got into a relationship, uh, got a conversation with, um, with a rail uh, labor advocate and at one point he handed me a paper that he had been involved in creating in 2008 that never really went anywhere and it was about modernizing the northern transcon and i didn't even know what the northern transcon was at the time you know but it's the rail corridor between uh the chicago and and the puget sound area so uh, he said why don't you see if you and your people can green this? And I'm doing air quotes. I, I am a student, as you know, of, of grand strategy. And I, I know that you have to build alliances in, for social movements to have power. You have to, the three major principles of grand strategy are expand alliances, uh, increase cohesion between allies, and deepen the resolve of your people. So I took Mike's, uh, Mike Elliott's uh, uh, challenge very seriously and recruited a team of folks. And I like, I've always liked policy and those things. So it wasn't a, a major, you know, uh, departure, but it was a new learning curve, a very steep learning curve, actually. And, uh, and a learning curve that I remain on at this moment. So for the last nine years, I've been fascinated by rail and and railroads and in a way similar to rivers like the columbia snake river which to me transcends our assumptions about eastern and western washington that we're separate places and separate people yeah but that we're all salmon people and we're united by these rivers is something that's really compelling to me so Similarly, although very different, uh, railroads connect us all. And railroads have a, a very dark history as a tool of genocide and settler colonialism and even warfare. Uh, I think it was G uh, General Grant arguing to the Texas legislature, or maybe it was General Sherman arguing to the Texas legislature that, um, that they needed to not stop the buffalo hunt from the trains because it was part of the strategy to destroy the food supply for their, the enemy. 
so to speak. So, uh, so anyway, there's the dark history there. Yeah. Um, there's also the history of the, the land grants. It's like a large portion, I want to say maybe even like 50% of the land in um, what we call Washington now uh, was granted. Of course, it really belonged to the people who lived here, but um, granted to the railroads uh, as part of this, the creation of this infrastructure for this critical infrastructure for this new country. And then with the advent of the, uh, of the, car and then, and then the freeway system, the interstate highway system. Uh, there's lots of, there's just a rich history and we, I don't want to go into those weeds too much, but there is, was a process where communities grew up around railroads and, and they relied on those railroads uh, for passenger and for freight service. And before, before 1970, there wasn't a delineation between passenger and freight railroads. They were just railroads because Railroads had, because they're such critical infrastructure for the society, they had what are called common carrier obligations. So that meant that they had to provide reasonable service and they couldn't discriminate against the small farmer versus the very large shipper who wanted to move things across the country. But they did. You know, that was the part of the origins of the populist movement and then the labor movement. And so the, the, the railroads, we've been in this fight with the railroads from the very beginning. And I think partly it's that we kind of created a system that could never really work by, um, by entrusting critical infrastructure to private entities. So for years, starting with the Interstate Commerce Act in 1886, 1887, to, um, to the Staggers Act in 1980, um, we regulated the rail- railroads very stringently and, and for their own faults and because of this, this structure, they were not thriving. So, uh, so we deregulated in 1980. We actually in 1970 began the process by forgiving them of their obligation to provide passenger service. In 1976, we created a thing, an act then that, that exempted them from serving fruits and vegetables. Uh, and so their common carrier obligations weren't, were no longer relevant for fruits and vegetables. And then in 1980, we expanded that to the, to, until the only thing they actually had to carry was coal, oil, uh, some hazardous chemicals, and grain and feed. So currently, they're exempt from even carrying intermodal containers. They do not have to. We provided them service exemptions so that communities that were historically dependent upon railroads that could get truck service were then said, oh, no, you have trucks, so the railroads don't have to serve you anymore. And then... um, which, of course, does not take into account that the trucks tear up those county roads, that it's more expensive for those places, so, et cetera, et cetera. Or that those communities relied on that railroad, that passenger service, et cetera. So we, all these historically rail-served communities became victims of something else that was going on simultaneously, which was globalization. So I'm really fascinated by the the parallel history of deregulation of transportation and the globalization of our economy. When I was a student doing political science and development studies in the 80s, 
it really stuck with me this idea that the African railroads went from the point of extraction to the port. They had really no function to serve the society. They really were just about extracting value. From 1970 to 2020, we have lost 75,000 miles, route miles of track of rail service in this country. And 35,000 of that since 1980, or 32 since 1980. The big railroads spun off and created all these branch lines. We talk about short line and regional railroads. There used to be very few of those. And they only had about eight, eight 9,000 miles. Now they have 50,000 miles of track. And um, th- so they were spun off because they're less regulated. And the big railroads are now in the process of demarketing, stopping to serve places that are not just not profitable, but not profitable enough. So right at the time when we absolutely need a climate solution, that is efficient, like rails are efficient, that can be electrified, like rails can be electrified and are being electrified around the world. We have a corporate Wall Street controlled monopoly, set of monopolies, BNSF, Union Pacific, CSX, Norfolk Southern, Canadian National, Canadian Pacific, and Kansas City Southern. Those seven railroads, especially the first ones I mentioned, are, are, you know, are just chasing bigger and bigger profits without any consideration of pu- or accountability to public interests and 21st century public interests that are especially connected to solving the climate crisis and decarbonizing our transportation. And so lately with the supply chain crisis, I've been really fascinated by looking at the parallel growth of those, of those paths of both the use of the word multinational and deregulation. Like those two words emerged within the same few years in the mid seventies. Their path for um, usage, if I did a Google word usage search, they spike in exact parallel lines. And so now for me, as we talk about, I do agree, we need to reshore. We've hit the limits of globalization. We have a system more like that African uh, map of, of the railroads. It's basically been so pruned to serve only the giant corporations for maximum profit rather than the public interest that we, we need to turn that around. And what I love about railroads, <clears throat> like rivers again, is they connect all kinds, all kinds of people have an interest in that. Right. We think about the rise of this right-wing populism that's happened. How much of that is about globalization leaving people behind? How much of that is related to the, the chronic rural depopulation that has resulted? How much of that is related to the the concentration, the move from agriculture to agribusiness that Wendell Berry is so speaks so and writes so beautifully about? A livable future, a future that's based on a paradigm where we're all in this together and that we're preserving the things and the places that we love for future generations needs to localize. It needs to have regenerative agriculture. It needs to have regional trade. It has to be decarbonized. It has to be electrified. And we have to use less. 
We have to make better stuff that people can hang on to for years and then and be able to repair the right of repair, right? And I feel like the railroads are part of the infrastructure for that different system, but we've got to reclaim them <clears throat> as a tool for getting there, as the infrastructure for sustainability. Those rail corridors could be have shorter, tr- more frequent trains that move people and goods more quickly, dedicated tracks for pe- stuff, uh, fast tracks for fast people, fast freight movement, and then dedicated slow tracks for those things that have to go more slowly. It should be an open access system. It shouldn't be controlled. It should be harmonized with our freeway infrastructure so that we're always using the least amount we're doing the least harm and we're giving the most benefit. So I'm, I'm really excited by railroads. And again, whether it's the rural communities or the urban communities who are so negatively impacted by diesel trucks in these warehouses that are sprawling and, and, and impacting these communities health or the, uh, or the rail yards that are poisoning those communities because of the dirty diesel locomotives that are operating within those yards or the, or the trans Pacific freight that, wow, what if it came through the bearing, a bearing straight tunnel, you know, and, 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 and with, and why not have transmission of, of wind and solar that, uh, this high voltage DC that, that is efficient and it is, um, so that the, the the wind is always blowing someplace and the sun is always shining someplace. So that we, why not make that our project for the next decade at to sow connections and build an infrastructure, trans, transform our infrastructure to be one that facilitates uh, sustainability rather than profit maximization. So I'm really interested in that, obviously. And thanks for being patient with my diatribes. Would you speak to polarization? Because that word uh, comes up at times. And certainly we need to unify more. But uh, is that also an important word? So take it away, Bill. There, I listen to and pay attention a lot to uh, to movement theorists, scholars around strategy. And I noticed a few years ago that they were really, they, they, they made the goal of action to be polarization. And, you know, I'm, an, I'm just turned 56. So I'm no, I'm not 20. I'm not just, I'm not just pissed. You know, I, I, I am plenty pissed, but I'm not just pissed. And I'm not my the goal of my activism is not just to express how angry I am. The goal of activism is to build power for communities and a value system. The idea that polarization of pushing people away and lifting up ideas is or making is separating into good and bad people. I think that's how it gets interpreted. I think that what maybe at the root of what they mean or what they would like to be communicating or what I hope they would, folks would communicate when we think about 
the role of what do we mean by polarization in um, in activism is to force a moral choice to so exemplify one's values to do so in an unassailable way so that it enrolls people who witness this these actions and I is to identify with the action that they're participating in or visual or seen on TV or in, on social media um, that that it forces them to make a decision that it forces them to choose a side um, but it's it's about to me, it's about forcing that moral conundrum, creating a moral conundrum and forcing a choice and, it, and expressing that choice very clearly. So that, yes, you have the choice of profit with impunity and corruption uh, for the benefit of a few versus we're all in this together, uh, preserving that which is irreplaceable for future generations and are resisting uh, and supporting the dignity of all. That's the polarization that I, I think we're, we should be shooting for. But I think what's happened is it, it's gotten interpreted as something else. And sadly, what we see and witnessed over oh, since like at least 2016 and I, you know, and I referred to the, the rise of right wing or the, what I'd call negative populism, um, I, is, uh, is that <clears throat> rather than building connections with the communities, trying to identify <clears throat> with the grievances that are legitimate, not the grievances that are manufactured or appealing to the worst in people, their racism, their xenophobia, their fear of the other, their sense of, of scarcity, um, but appealing to the best in people, their sense of place, the things that they love, their connection to communities, their obligations to future generations. I think that's a far more important strategic purpose and goal than um than than separating people into uh the good and the bad camps because moral power the power of social movement power is is like i said with about grand strategy it is all about expanding alliances increasing cohesion and deepening the resolve making sure that people are fighting for engaged fighting it it is a fight it's a struggle they're struggling from a place <clears throat> that is linked to their deepest aspirations and values, that they're doing that in connection with others who are doing the same. And these groups are allied, you know, with, uh, with folks in other places and, um, and, and folks motivated from um, around other causes. So, Anyway, I think that, that finding connections between people in rural places and urban places and, uh, and uh, the tribes and, uh, and the uh, environmentalists and, uh, um, and the labor and global people who, you know, I think, trans, I think we need transnational solidarity as we need standards for trade that are uh, like modeled on the 
Nothing crosses the border if it's built by child labor. Well, nothing should cross the border if it's, you know, violating certain standards of sustainability or labor standards, et cetera. So we need a great expanded sense of solidarity. And I think that um, what I love about rivers, what I love about railroads, what I love about species like salmon and the orca is they appeal to the what's best in us and they, they connect us with unlikely allies or uncon- people who we didn't consider, we didn't assume would be share a common cause with us. And, and so I think this is a time where we need to set aside the, the negative sort of polarization and really embrace um, what we, sh- the, the fundamental values and aspirations that we share with most of humanity. You give a variety of types of presentations. Would you speak to that a little bit, please? Sure. So the backbonecampaign.org and now solutionaryrail.org are both resources for people to learn more about these things that we're talking about. Lately, it's been all virtual for the most, almost all virtual. Now that's changing. I went to Buffalo, New York, and I'm doing some, I'm going up to San Juan Island here. um, And we're actually doing a little training on Vashon tonight. So as things open up in this, whatever phase of COVID we're we're going into, um, the, yeah, Backbone Campaign does bring teams of folks Sometimes I just go and, um, and we show people how to do uh, certain types of activism, like using lights or using giant banners. Or I was um, meeting with some folks in Vancouver Island who are going to do a floating banner this spring um, uh, around uh, opposing to close down uh, fish farms around Vancouver Island. So... Um, so whether it be folks can contact info at backbonecampaign.org if they're interested in either a training that relates to how to be an uh how to have a local campaign that is you know has a is more appealing and, and as uses creativity and a variety of creative tactics or what we call artful activism in order to um to uh, get media attention to help spread the word of the work and the issue. Um, and folks can also contact us there if they're interested in learning more about Solutionary Rail. And the, and if, and Solutionary Rail actually has a bunch of interviews with, uh, with different sorts of railroad related, uh, allies and experts and community, um, community experts as well as technical experts. So, those two websites and info at backbonecampaign.org are great ways to reach out. And yes, we do have folks in our uh, team backbone who are specialists in a variety of things, whether that be giant inflatable images, human murals, giant banners, light projection, you name it. We've been doing a lot. We've learned a lot over the last um, 20 years. Um, would you like to give some more topics? that your organization has worked on specifically? So our organization is basically a movement building organization. So most of our work 
is responding to requests from um, from other communities and organizations that are looking for help with their campaigns. So we, of course, have done work around uh, Medicare for All, improved Medicare for All, um, uh, peace and uh, and civil rights and uh, and uh, black. We supported the Black Lives Matter movement efforts. Uh, we uh, we work because we have allies all over the country and even now in other on other continents. Um, we teach people to work. You know how to use light projection for any number of causes. But for instance, during COP twenty six. Uh, we were uh, helping people do light projection. Glasgow? Or was it Edinburgh? I, I'm kind of, I just spaced out now. I, like, uh, I think you've, we been, actually you've, been around, you've been around the world, that's for sure. Yeah, at least virtually. But yeah, so climate, uh, you know, but really uh, our organization right now, we're a tiny, scrappy group, actually. Based on Bash on Island, with you know just a, a couple of full-time employees, me and my partner in crime, Amy, and then uh, some um, you know part-time help contractors and someone who takes care of the warehouse and someone who d- deals with stuff in DC, and so you know we're pretty scrappy. So we have to be limited in what we try to tackle, and we want to help spread what the lessons we've learned to others because uh, we can't do it all. We're really. We're all in this together and literally and figuratively, and we need, um, and so we're just trying to bring what we've learned to the table, share that both in strategy, in the tactics that we, that are deployable, in how to organize actions, and now in our particular campaigns around Snake River Dam removal, um, and the, um, the solutionary rail project. And, uh, and so like for Washington State, um, you know, we're very opposed to this ultra high speed rail project, this bullet train project that's going to connect very few communities. It's a, it's a boondoggle for billionaires of and for and by the billionaires. And yet it's, it's now it's starting to receive real public, uh, um, money from our legislature. Um, and I'm really concerned about that because I think we're really missing the point on rail transport and solving real problems on a timeline that needs to be addressed. Um, and we're ignoring past plans for fixing the Amtrak Cascades or expanding east-west service intercity uh, rail. So that's very troubling to me in Pacific Northwest. And nationally, we're fighting for um, a re-regulation of the railroads or uh, to force um, them to be serving 21st century public interests and reaffirm the common carrier obligations. So those are those are already big things for our little organization to try to um, help with. So other than that, we just, we do this other support work. That's wonderful. I really thank you for being with us today, Bill. Is there anything that you want to add? Anything you want people to know? I would just say that, you know, backbone campaigns started by people, friends, getting together and having a potluck and having an intentional potluck with a conversation, well, what could we do? And so I really encourage people to do things like that. Get together with your pod, you know, your, and, uh, and, and come around in an intentional way and have a brainstorm. You know, I like to ask, wouldn't it be funny if, or wouldn't it be beautiful if, 
or wouldn't it be amazing if, and then fill in the gap, like answer those questions and then use our own creative and collective genius to, to rise to the occasion because, you know, we need to be the leaders we're looking for. We need a leaderful movement, not a leaderless movement. <laughs> and, uh, and we need a lot. Of, we need to know that there are lots of ways to access and be agents of change. Mm-hmm. And it's not just about activism. It's about building the solutions for the future. It's about you. So that means that the organic farmer and the co-op bike shop and the, uh, and the, co- and the credit union and the, and the, the history, the decolonization group and the, um, we, it's all important. Right. And we need, and the community organizing, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, this, the, all of those things are important. And we're, we're a bigger movement if we acknowledge all the different ways that people engage as change agents. And so I encourage us to both, you know, get together with those people, uh, let everybody bring their gifts to the table, whether they're a welder or a pilot or a, or a, an artist or a gardener, or whatever. And I'll let everybody bring bring their gifts to the table and figure out your own. Let's be solutionaries. Let's deal with. I like to think of myself as a radical solutionary, meaning I want to solve root problems, radish root, right? Not, <laughs> I want root Great. problems, Great. real solutions to root problems. I would invite everybody to, uh, you know, steal that one and, and uh, join the cause. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks, Mark, for letting me share the Backbone campaign with your audience. Back to you now. Thanks, Brenda, for the wonderful program today. I look forward to more from Pathways with Brenda Astorino in the future. And folks, I have the links to Bill Moyer, the Backbone Campaign, and to Solutionary Rail on northernspiritradio.org. So track them down and get involved. We'll be back next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. Oh